Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr. Michaela Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and the research lead for a UK and a changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for British citizens living in the EU 27. I've just come back from a holiday, um, so that's why we've been a little out of sync with our normal programming over the last few weeks. But I'm really pleased today to bring you a conversation with Sean Rowlands. Early on in the project, Sean got in touch with me to tell me how interesting he thought the research was. Because he, his father lives in Portugal and he's also had quite a lot of experience of moving all around the world. And we met up and had a very early conversation, I seem to remember. Um, So Sean, perhaps it would be a good idea for you to tell us a little bit about what it was that uh, you thought was interesting about about the project. Yes, so what I was looking at different things at that time that were being funded in research about Brexit. And a lot of them were about how that might affect things very close to home, about Britain and stuff like that, from different angles. And this was one of the only ones that was talking about people abroad. And straight away, I thought, well, that kind of includes my dad. Well, it definitely includes my dad. He's been living in Portugal for about 12 years, and it's the second time he's lived there. He lived there first in the 70s and 80s. And basically, he hasn't lived in the UK since the 70s he's lived in lots of different places and so I saw there was a, a, like a kind of immediate significant thing because obviously there was the possibility of how it might affect him and you know his need for health care he's still working even though he's really old um, so you know maybe his ability to work and you know if he one day gets a pension how that might affect him as well and I thought you might want to you might want to hear about him as an example and I was just kind of interested to talk about research because I'd start just at that point started to get interested in research. Does that mean that when you were growing up, your dad was living in another country or were you living in Portugal too? Okay, so yeah, so my dad's been an English teacher all his career. He first moved from Hull to Cairo in the mid 70s. He's from Liverpool, but he was living in Hull at the time. And my mum kind of more or less at the same time, independently, she also moved um abroad around that time and they met in Portugal and after that they came back to the to Britain for a very short period and then went to Ecuador and that's where I was born and then uh, my other brother was born there as well and their career as English teachers kept going and kept like uh, moving around a lot and um, so from Ecuador we moved to Sri Lanka from Sri Lanka we moved to Spain from Spain we moved to uh, Malaysia and then from Malaysia we moved to Portugal and that's where my dad stayed since. Since then, I moved to the UK to study, and I've more or less been here the whole time, although I did study for a little bit in the Netherlands as well and go back to live with my dad for a little bit for like about eight or ten months. Yeah, so basically most of the time that I was, well, actually not the whole time I was living with my dad, was outside of Britain, and the whole time I've been living away from my parents on my own, most of it has been in the UK. That's really interesting, I've been thinking a lot about um, Britain's emigrants and the kind of the diversity of Britain's emigrants. And in your case, I'm not sure that it would be right to say that you were a British emigrant because you were born overseas. So you're a British citizen who happens to have been born outside of the UK. And you seem to have followed that quite, I'd say typical, but I'm not sure it's typical 
I've got nothing to back it up from that point of view, but that typical thing of coming back to the UK to go to university, which does seem to be quite a common uh, route that British citizens who are born and raised overseas follow for lots of reasons. What do you think that kind of history of personal history of growing up outside of Britain has done for you? It's not exactly tangible, but the most obvious thing is it's given me language skills, which I'm really grateful to have. And then like in a kind of harder to explain, less tangible way, there's been experiences that I had growing up that I can't really compare to being in one place the whole time. But I am my kind of like residing sense is that I'm grateful that my parents kept up their adventure when they were, even when they had three kids and stuff. But funnily enough, my two brothers kind of have a different attitude to this. I think not all of they don't necessarily feel the same way about whether it was a good thing for them to move so much when they were growing up, even though they definitely do have the language skills and appreciate the thing. Like, But my understanding is that they don't necessarily feel like it was... I acknowledge there were difficulties as well, but they try to see it a bit less rosy-eyed than I do. And... Growing up outside of Britain, do you what sense of yourself as British did you have? So I most of the time I went to schools with British curriculum where there were the dominant kind of history and maybe nationality of teachers would have been not well, the majority, let's say, of nationalities um of teachers and of um the history of the schools and stuff like that would have been British. But it would have been mixed with lots of other people from different parts of the world. And then the student body would usually be like, my classmates would usually be mostly from the country I was living in with a kind of mix of lots of different people. And maybe this, the largest group of kids would have been from England as opposed to the lo- local ones. So I think schools had something to do with it. You know, whereas if I was in, in a town where there was an American school, then there would be a noted difference even between the, the local students in those places, like, that would have a difference. I suppose there's kind of, like, a connection through culture and television and, like, my parents having, like, things like the young ones and stuff like that. And I would come back to visit a lot to see my aunt. Not so often, you know, maybe be once every kind of two or three years. And so when I would come back to Europe, if I didn't live in Europe at the time it would be to go to the UK. So we would kind of only come back to Europe if we lived in Asia or Latin America out of family, you know, kind of out of duty, obviously to see, happy to see them, but like it wouldn't be to go see somewhere. It would be to come back to see some people. In an earlier episode of the podcast, I spoke with a young woman who'd been raised in Belgium and she talked about um coming back to Britain to go to university and realising at that stage that although all the way through her life she'd kind of felt British, that actually there were quite a few a few instances, like conversations that she'd have with people once she returned, um, sorry, not returned because she had never been here in the first place, but um, in that situation in the university where she realised what the limits of her knowledge and understanding were in respect to British history and culture and actually what the opportunity of 
studying in a European school, like, um, and how that had shaped her knowledge and understanding in particular ways. So actually, that moment of coming to Britain as an 18 year old to study was the moment at which she started to uh, really question what does it mean to be British? What does it mean to be European? I wondered if you'd had any kind of similar experiences. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first got here, people asked if I was Swedish or Danish, which makes sense, right? Because they speak perfect English, but they don't, they're not from here, right? You know, Sandy Soxvik, you can still kind of tell she's not English, even though she's got a really English accent. So yeah, so I did get kind of like some bits and pieces like that. I did international baccalaureate as well before I got to university. And I did notice like little differences, for example, like the way that I noticed a lot about the way that my classmates felt about university, about school and stuff. They didn't necessarily have the same feeling about why they were in university. It's totally anecdotal, but I got a sense of people being pushed to in by, by um, but that's first year undergraduate anyway, I suppose, in general. Actually, so two weeks into uh, living in the UK, I got arrested and that was horrible. And I remember very clearly like putting it on, like when I was really stressed about it, so I got arrested and we got put in jail for the night. And then the next day I was really upset. And it was in my mind that I'd come back. Like it was strange. I'd never used this term before, but I was like, I've come back to the motherland and this is what's happened. Which is obviously like, you know, it's only one little story and people get in much worse situations with police. But it seemed strange to me. And then when I called my dad, he wasn't in the slightest bit surprised. He said, well, of course they would. You know, of course they were really rough. Of course they were horrible. And so that understanding that he'd had, which, you know, maybe had to an extent of me being less sheltered than I had been as a foreigner, generally, as I was growing up, was really interesting to me. I mean, I'd had, like, I'd had encounters with the police in Portugal, for example, nothing too serious, but I knew, like, that they could be difficult. And I didn't really have this strong idea that somehow, like, the British police would be the most well-behaved and most uh, nicest ones. But I was, for some reason, really struck by this happening. And so soon after moving back, and I'm not exactly sure why, but it, there was moving back and having it happen so quickly had an effect. It's not an unusual experience, but as you say, so soon after coming to the UK to study, finding that this thing happened to you, I suppose it's kind of a little bit of a wake up or, or maybe that's the right word. But um, I suppose it would be a good idea to kind of fast forward a little bit to Brexit and to thinking about what that means for your family or what your concerns originally were in respect to your family and in, in respect to any future plans that you may have had? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was really upsetting when it happened. It wasn't just at that time that I would say that I was a European. It's not the only thing that I would say that I identify as. You know, I've got double nationality. I'm Ecuadorian by birth and I'm British by blood. But I'd also spent a lot of my life growing up in Europe. And I didn't really distinguish that much between living in Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands or the UK. In a sense, I didn't really like the distinction would be a lot stronger between those places and say Malaysia or Sri Lanka and Ecuador, mainly because of the distance really. And so, yeah, so, I mean, I felt like I'd been educated in, um, my family had taken me to Europe where they, I'd been educated. I had loads of friends in Europe, from Europe, in the UK. 
um, lots of most actually since I've been in the UK I've probably associated mostly with Europeans which is kind of possible in in London like when I first moved to London kind of after actually with that arrest I got a job in a club and everybody in the club was mostly a lot of them were Spanish and so I could speak Spanish with them and so for the first kind of first six months or so I was kind of like in a social sense like with Spanish expats in London more than I was with British people that seemed more comfortable at the time so yeah so I mean kind of skipping back again to Brexit like I did feel like I was a European and I did feel like a lot of things that that had happened to me as I was taken around the world by my family but also that I'd chosen to do when I went back to study in the Netherlands were being cut off from me and I felt a big sense of really having only known London very well in the UK. You know, I go to Liverpool where my dad's from and stuff like that, but I don't really know that well because my family don't live there anymore. And I got a sense of this thing of like maybe London's more connected to Europe than the rest of it. And I got this sense of not really understanding. But then, you know, that's kind of a bit exaggerated, I think, as well, like that difference. And I got, yeah, I was really upset. And I was also worried about my dad. And I was worried about my mum because, bless her, she's been wanting to retire for a long time and her idea is Southern Europe, even though she's living in lots of different other places. She wanted to move. So it kind of might affect my mum a bit more than my dad, strangely, even though she doesn't, they're separated. And she doesn't live in Europe, but she wanted to. She didn't want to come back to the UK. And I want to move on as well. Like, I would like, I hope to have another stint living in the Euro- in Europe. I'm pretty sure I will. I really like the idea of living in Belgium. Uh, my partner's from Italy, so I'd like to live there at some point as well. Before I moved to the UK, I started exploring Eastern Europe for the first time and found lots of places I really like there, like Slovakia and Hungary. And it seems like that's all possible, but it doesn't seem like it's necessarily something I can do on, on quite a whim anymore. I think that you've kind of, there's so many things to explore within that. You know, you, you come from a family that moves around a lot and that's that's a feature of being an English language teacher. You know, if that's a profession, that's something that happens, isn't it? You move around a lot. And that kind of sense of your mum's future and her retirement and having pinned this on being able to move probably anywhere within the European Union... And now finding that there's a question mark over that, it definitely won't be, I think what you're implying is it won't be as straightforward as it might have been originally. And then all of those ideas about, you know, your your hopes and plans for the future, but also the fact that your your own personal relationship is is a European relationship, it's not. I just wanted to backtrack a bit and ask you, you said, you know, you, you felt European. What What do you mean by that? It's not like a feeling. It wasn't like a kind of identity. I don't walk around with with the blue and yellow stars on a pin. I kind of get annoyed about that side of British society at the moment. I think that they could do with the people who say they love Europe. I don't doubt that they're sincere, but I think they could do with being a bit more clear and and realistic. What I mean is I don't particularly like this kind of fetishizing of Europe as some sort of like kind of higher state of being. And I don't feel like that's how it was for me. There's not nice things about Spain. There's not nice things about Portugal. There's not nice things about the Netherlands in all those places that I lived in. 
you know, maybe actually when I went to the Netherlands and I thought, okay, I was going to some better university system than the UK, which I do feel I did go to. I mean, I went there specifically for the course that I chose to do. It was the better one than the one was offered in the UK. But I also had this idea of, well, the fees are lower there. They've had a less privatized uh, university system. And so I thought, okay, that would be a relief from some of the things that were a bit disappointing when I was in London studying. And that turned out to be the case, but not because of how the Netherlands is or how Europe is, because they were kind of on a privatization track anyway, and there were similar problems anyway. So I kind of, I feel like I dispelled a bit of that when I moved. But just on the basis of where I'd spent a lot of my time growing up, the fact of where a lot of my personal relations were with my friends, in fact, where my friends had grown up, even if they were British, um, uh, the fact that people from that I met from Britain, that I'd been able to show them places that I'd lived in Europe, that I could kind of get them to know as well, kind of show them and introduce them to people I know there. So it's not really like a strong like identity thing. I wouldn't say I identified as European, but that is definitely next to the point that I would not identify at all as British either in that kind of soulful sense. You know, I don't really believe in that. I'd rather say that I'm Ecuadorian because it's it makes more sense to me in a strange way because I barely ever lived there. I only really have the passport. I have the passport because I was born there, but there's not many countries that would in which that would be true. My connection to Ecuador has been chosen in the sense that, like, I kind of went and I studied um, studied there. I did some research there and I met people on my own two legs there. My parents went there as an adventure as well. So to me, it seems like I'm more Ecuadorian because that kind of dispels this idea that there's anything, like, within me that's anything. Like, this, I'm more Ecuadorian because that's more of a fake identity and that makes more sense to me than saying I'm British which in some authentic way. I think that what you've highlighted is that your that idea of being European, which you've described as not a feeling, is actually about being able to demonstrate or being proud of the relationships that you've built in those places that you've been in and being able to communicate with... You speak Spanish, I know that. I assume you speak a little bit of Portuguese as well. I'm, I don't know about whether you speak Dutch, but... Um, it seems to me that that's kind of what you're pointing to is the importance of the relationships in the in the places that you've lived and to the places that you've lived, while also knowing that to say that you were Spanish or to say that you were Portuguese probably is, you were probably equally dubious about. Have I got that right? Yeah, but I think that the, the dubious side is way more real than the trying to pin some authenticity to something. To an extent, it's like, it's a bit of a better yarn if I like tell the whole story in a way, but it's also a bit more true, right? So, I mean, I can't, from the way my appearance, like not many people believe that I'm Ecuadorian uh, from, you know, my skin and, and, but still like in a way, I don't think it really makes sense to say I'm, I'm British if I only moved here when I was 18, when I might be speaking to somebody who would say that like in, in my neighborhood in Elephant and Castle, who is, uh, who would say they're Ecuadorian, but have lived in the UK twice as long as I have. It just, just seems better to kind of make it, to unsettle the identity of it and just to say it's not any of them, really. I think that's a, 
It's a really interesting point of view. Can we go back to Brexit just just briefly to close? I think that, you know, you talked quite extensively when you were talking about living in Sri Lanka as knowing that being part of that English-speaking community, you were positioned in some kind of almost in parallel to what might have been happening on a local level. And I've also picked up some scepticism from you about the possibility that Brexit will change your ability to move, which I think that I know that that the initial uh, reaction of lots of uh, British people who live abroad, knowing that rights are going to change, is to say, oh, you know, that, well, this is going to take everything away. But I think that you're a little bit more sceptical about about that. My experience has been not always depending on um, freedom of movement. So my parents could work because they work for the British Council, which is a big um, international organisation that arranged for them to have their working status in each country or their right to a family, you know, and also their right to a family. And sometimes my mum worked and sometimes she didn't, but she would be there with, with all of us. She's an English teacher as well. And also I look at a place like uh, London where not everybody who lives here is depending on freedom of movement, although obviously like a lot of them have really difficult times. And I think it's a little bit strange to say that because you lose one of the most fluid rights that exists in the world, like the freedom of movement within the European Union, that suddenly you're going to be entirely trapped. That doesn't make sense to me, especially when you think about the privilege that we have in terms of our language, which can be used in so many places, in terms of English that can be used in so many places, and the fact that there's also privilege in terms of you know, if you're making a certain amount of money, most of these countries will allow from any country. And so Britain is a rich country with a strong economy where a lot of people, if they wanted to move, they probably would move into the kind of income bracket that would be make it feasible to move. And I kind of count myself in that. But then on the other hand, I've got lots of friends in London who are here on um, exercising treaty rights and all that kind of stuff. They're coming here as part of, as European citizens. It's not just about them staying here. It's also about like, they they, they didn't all necessarily come from their country directly to Britain. They might've gone through other countries like Netherlands or Belgium and stuff like that. I think it's not always necessary to have a massive program to make it possible to move between countries. I think that there's a lot more possibility to migrate than people think. And I think that most people, the biggest reason people don't migrate is because they don't really want to. I think that's the biggest thing that stops people. People get, as far as I can tell, they get comfortable in one place. I moved to the UK in when I was 19 and I've only really moved away periodically, even though I thought I was never going to stop. So it's strange. It, you do get really, it's difficult to stop settling yourself. I think that, cultural side of it is a lot stronger than any kind of law i think if you need to whether you're a refugee or whether you absolutely need to leave a bad economy you know if you're in a marginalized position or whether you find a really neat big kind of cultural need to move away you kind of will find a way even though a lot of people might be a lot of people are obstructed from it if you look at the fact that people go across the mediterranean when they've got absolutely no rights, but they absolutely need to. 
that shows that getting across the channel as a as a person with a British passport is not going to be that difficult for me and it's not necessarily like the most pressing migration issue I don't think I think that's a really good um, point about the relative ease with which you can move with a British passport which has been something that I've been banging on about for too many years uh, to well yeah too many years <laughs> I think that you kind of also teased out there a little about how um you know the various different things I, I like that discussion of you know you came to London and you didn't think that you'd still be here basically you thought that by now you might have moved on but there are things that start to hold you into some places for longer and your life circumstances change as well alongside that time and you kind of become more embedded you know, you kind of get more connections, which make it more difficult for you to lift yourself up and move on or different circumstances happen and different opportunities come up. And of course, for some people, movement is never going to be possible precisely because they don't fall into that privileged category of, I think, what some people have been calling middling migrants, people who earn a reasonable amount of money who are favoured through the migration regimes more generally or who can afford to invest in a certain amount of property or or something like that. And it is highly stratified, that mobility, which I think is, is one of the things that you were pointing to. I've seen that a lot growing up. I've seen there's levels above me and there's lots of levels below me. But you notice it quite culturally in like ports of entry. You notice it in jobs, in work. You notice it in in schools like it's it's interesting that there is a kind of class system to mobility yeah yeah it is and and i think what you what you're reflecting on is that you know that socially you're positioned quite well within that class system which is why in the future should you choose to move you would be choosing to move first of all most lightly and you would find a way because of all of those resources that you can draw on the cultural capital of being an English speaker, but also being a Spanish speaker. I mean, this is also another another value, I think, that you can carry with you, along with the fact that you have your British passport and your your Ecuadorian passport. So this is um I think that's really it's a really useful point on which to to end. So thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast hosted by me, Dr. Michaela Benson, and produced by Emma Halton at Art of Podcast. The series is part of a UK and a Changing Europe funded research project, Brexit Brits Abroad, that's all about what Brexit means for UK citizens living in the EU 27. We're really keen to hear from you about the issues and concerns we address in the programme So please do get in touch with any thoughts, queries and questions. You can find our contact details on our webpage, Brexit Brits Abroad, or get in touch via social media. We're on Twitter at BrexPatsEU and we have a Facebook page, Brexit Brits Abroad. Finally, in case you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on both iTunes and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode.